So Pastor Chris is on vacation today for a much needed rest. Um, but we have a great speaker here in his place. He is no stranger to this platform. He always brings a great word and he has a great message for you today. So with that, would you please join me in welcoming Brother Jamie. Can you guys hear me? All right. That was like two people responded. Good morning, third service. You guys doing okay? Are you sure about that? I can't tell. Still asleep? Really? How many of you were here for our uh, back-to-school blessing? Raise your hand. So you guys were here when Pastor Chris said you guys were his favorite service? Uh-huh. Yeah, we'll see about that, okay? We'll see about that. Uh, first of all, giving all honor to God, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is such a blessing to be with you, with you here this morning. Um, it's an exciting time. We've been immersed in a sermon series entitled Breaking Point, and we're going to continue in with that today. The subtitle of today's message, however, is Dig Deeper. And so in this sermon series thus far, Pastor Chris has been doing a phenomenal job of tying Scripture in to our sort of everyday mental and emotional and physical plight. And he's giving us a kingdom, biblical perspective on those items. So we're going to continue to dig deeper. Um, I'm a huge fan of storytelling, whether it's in the form of books, movies, TV shows, what have you. I like really good storytelling, um, character development, you know, the beginning, the climax and the resolution, how it's really, really well told. And I'm drawn to individuals who are good storytellers. Pastor Chris is a great storyteller. I can listen to him all day long and three times on Sundays. Um, Dr. Tony Evans is someone else that I follow. Phenomenal storyteller. Um, we're going to the Gateway Leadership Conference in Dallas in a couple of weeks. And their head pastor, Pastor Robert Morris, is a phenomenal storyteller. So I'm drawn to that. Well, today we're going to be looking at some of the parables that Jesus taught to his disciples, the Pharisees, and anyone who was willing to listen. But one of the interesting things that I love about the Bible is the eternity that we find in it. It's so rich with, and infinitely rich with information, instructions, guidance, and the beautiful way that God displays his love to us in his word. I could be in one particular season in my life and read a piece of scripture, and the Holy Spirit will illuminate and bring to life whatever he has for me in that moment. And then in another season in my life, I can read that exact same piece of scripture and the Holy Spirit will illuminate and bring something else totally different for my life in that situation. Because the Bible says in Hebrews that the word of God is alive and powerful. It's eternal. Amen? So today we got six points that we're going to cover really quick, or at least I'm hoping to be quick, involving 
the concept of digging deeper. Number one, the purpose of parables. Let's go back to our childhood for a moment. The tortoise and the hare, the boy who cried wolf, three little pigs, Lord of the Rings. All right. Does any of those sound familiar to you? Just a few of you guys? Well, I'm dating myself. All right. These are all examples of stories meant to teach us lessons about life. They have surface level meaning, but they also invite us to dive beneath the surface to discover a deeper truth. Jesus was a master of this teaching style. His stories called parables have influenced individuals and societies since the first century. He pulled together the, the wisdom of Jewish tradition, the commonality of the Aramaic language, and the dialogue-oriented style of Greek learning to weave these masterful stories. His parables taught moral lessons, but they did so much more than that. They were our king's favorite way to show us his kingdom. He used these common, everyday occurrences to illustrate just how good God is, what it means to be his people, and what his kingdom is really like. The kingdom Jesus was introducing is so different than any earthly kingdom, so Jesus communicated it in a very different way a way that drew one of two responses, either arrogant dismissal or humble obedience. Jesus closes the parable about the sower, which has been called the parable about parables, with the phrase, he who has ears, let him hear. Since 99.9% of Jesus' audience had functioning, operating ears attached to their heads. What is he talking about? What does he mean? You see, he's inviting, almost challenging his disciples then and now to do the work of actually understanding. Amen? Dig deeper. He knew and acknowledged, like we will if we're honest, that we can hear something all day long, and it passes in one ear and out the other. My son is, if it was an Olympic game, he'd get gold all the time, and some of my Rush students too. Really good at that. But hear me, really hearing involves really listening. And here's the thing about the word hear that Jesus used. It means to obey as well as listen. So even in Jesus' closing line, he's giving us a clue, the key to interpreting his stories. There's something beneath the surface that we're meant to discover and do something with. Now, hopefully you're intrigued at this point. Yes? Yes. Because we're going to dig into some of Jesus' most famous parables, 
Some you'll probably be familiar with. Again, these stories have been shaping characters and cultures for centuries. But choose to pull out the earplugs of your preconceived ideas and pick up your spiritual shovel and let's dig beneath the surface together. Amen? Amen. All right, let's go. Number two, the parable of the sower found in Luke chapter 8. This story has been called by many the parable about parables. It's found in three of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all record Jesus' presentation of this particular metaphor. And there's a pretty significant reason why. A large crowd gathers around Jesus, and he sets up the scene in their minds by talking about a farmer who goes out to sow his seed. Some seeds fall on the path, some on rocky ground, some among the thorns, and some on good soil. Each of these different types, kinds of terrain produce a different result. The seed on the path is quickly eaten by birds. The seed among the rocks can't grow any roots, so the young plants wither and die. The seed that lands and falls among the thorns is eventually choked out. And lastly, the seed that lands on good soil produces a tremendous harvest. Now stay with me. So we have seeds, plants, and crops. What does this have to do with the kingdom of God? The disciples were asking and wondering the same thing. And honestly, Jesus' response is kind of confusing. He says in Luke chapter 8, verse 10, the knowledge of the kingdom, I'm sorry, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you. But to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. So Jesus doesn't want people to understand? That feels so cruel. I mean, he by his own admission has the words of life. Why would he want to conceal them from anyone? All great questions, but dig deeper. And what we learn from this parable about parables is that Jesus' teachings are not going to be full of cute sayings and easy answers. They're going to invite us to wrestle with hard truths because parables conceal in order to reveal. What does this mean? Take King David, for example. During the time when kings would normally go out to war, he stayed home. He was somewhere he shouldn't have been, so he saw something that he shouldn't have seen. He chose obedience to his own desires over obedience to God and wound up having an affair with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his most trusted, loyal, and great warriors. So God sends the prophet Nathan to confront him. And Nathan takes a really interesting approach. He tells David a story found in 2 Samuel chapter 12. In Nathan's story, there's a rich guy and a poor guy. The rich guy has a bunch of sheep. The poor guy only has one, and he loves this little lamb. 
It's his most prized possession. Well, one day the rich guy is entertaining a guest and he sees the little lamb and decides to take it to serve it to his friend for lunch. Pretty messed up. He used the power that he had to take the poor man's most treasured possession. So David, rightfully outraged when he hears this story, he asked Nathan who the rich man was so he could find him and punish him for what he had done. Nathan looked at the king and simply replied, you are that man. Can you imagine the air getting sucked out of that room? Nathan's parable lands so hard on King David that he immediately recognizes his sin and repents on the spot. Remember the two types of responses to these stories, arrogant dismissal or humble obedience, which was King David. And it's this teaching style that Jesus implements throughout his ministry because he understands the human condition. He knows that often the best way to confront our hearts is indirectly. So through his parables, Jesus comes sideways at the truth of the kingdom, the unsettling grace of God, and the countercultural way of life that we're called to. Jesus' parables beg two questions of every listener. Will we receive the truth he offers? And if so, how will we respond? Let's carry these questions into each parable that we examine in this message. Amen? Are you with me? I was like two or three. I'll take it. I will take it. The parable of the laborers found in Matthew chapter 20. But what if it's not fair? In this parable, Jesus is inviting us to wrestle with the radical, unsettling nature of God's grace. Grace that confronts all of our ideas about fairness and how we determine it. In this story, we're introduced to a landowner looking for workers to go out into his fields. He starts early in the morning, hires a few guys right away, and agrees to pay them a denarius for a day's work. So, he go, so they go and start working really hard. Meanwhile, the landowner goes back out to the marketplace four more times every few hours and continues to recruit people to work for him with the promise of paying them what's right. At the end of the day, he calls all the workers and starts passing out the wages, starting with the last guys that he hired. Surprisingly, he gives them a denarius, and they go on their merry way, only having worked for about an hour to an hour and a half. The landowner continues to hand out the payments until he gets to the guys who were hired first. Those are the only ones left, and he gives them a denarius. Are you tracking with me? So you're telling me Arthur, who only worked for an hour and a half, and I've been here since 7.30 in the morning, gets paid the exact same thing? Yeah, bro, that is most definitely not fair. 
So confused and upset, they expressed their frustration to the employer. And listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20, verses 13 through 15. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Did you catch that? The landowner in this story addresses our primary concerns right off the bat in verse 13. I am not being unfair to you, friend. This statement really challenges us to consider if our mechanism for determining fairness is broken. Because everything about this story feels kind of off. Why? It's because we're trained by our culture to compare, to determine what's fair. Employees, if we work longer and harder than someone else, we should make more. Students, if we make better grades, we should get into better schools. Athletes, if we train more and never miss a practice, we should get more playing time. That's how the world works. Our mechanism for what's fair is based on these comparison games we play with ourselves and others. But not so with God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, what's right isn't based on our definition of equity, but on his generosity. Amen? Did you catch that zinger at the end of Jesus' story in verse 15? Excuse me. <clears throat> the landowner asked, or are you envious because I'm jealous? I'm sorry, are you envious because I'm so generous? So we're going to hold his generosity against him? Really, though, and this is just another beautiful example of Jesus indirectly confronting our hearts. We're meant to ask ourselves the same question. Do we find ourselves stuck in bitterness or feeling envious because our God is generous? We can't get around the grace of God. It's who he is and who he will always be. Jesus is showing us that we can't hold on to any sense of entitlement in the kingdom of heaven because comparison and compassion are incompatible. Throughout human history, we have suffered from this comparison mentality. In fact, the Jewish people literally refused to enter the promised land because in comparison to other armies, they stood no chance. But God has always been inviting us to trust him and his goodness to leave the comparison game behind and embrace his often unsettling grace. Amen? Amen. Number four, the parable of the lost sheep found in Luke chapter 15. This short parable kicks off 
Luke 15, an entire chapter where Jesus tells the religious leaders and a group of sinners multiple stories about lost things being found. What he's doing is super intentional to both confront the Pharisees and comfort the sinners. Don't miss this. In this example, Jesus tells us to imagine we're a shepherd who has a bunch of sheep, 100 to be exact. If one gets lost, what would a good shepherd do? Won't he leave the 99 and go find the one? We sing songs about it. And when he finds it, he carries it home on his shoulders. Then he calls all of his boys around and throws a party, inviting others into his joy and celebration. Amen? What is Jesus concealing in order to reveal in this story? Dig deeper. To start with, let's understand the social contrast between the Pharisees and Jesus' audience and the main character of his story. Shepherds were hard workers and played a vital role in society, but they were, in reality, social outcasts. They were the definition of unclean when it comes to the standards of ceremonial cleanliness that the Pharisees lived by in order to perform their duties at the temple. Keep that in mind, okay? The use of sheep is also really significant. They had the tendency to wander and make the same errors over and over and over again. In the past, the prophets compared the nation of Israel, even the human condition as a whole, to this tendency in sheep. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. You see, this passage from Isaiah that the religious leaders would have known all too well pointed to the Messiah who was standing right in front of them sharing this story. In one stroke, Jesus is revealing who he is and what he does. He's sort of um, zooming out the lens to remind the Pharisees and the sinners the heart of God. People have continually wandered from God, pursuing other kings, other things, and other gods. But like the shepherd in the story, God never stops pursuing us. Amen? He relentlessly pursues people who have turned their backs on him over and over and over again. And that's really good news for the sinners listening to this story. God was willing to come after us before we were anywhere near cleaned up. And that fact confronted the Pharisees. God, our holy God, was willing to get dirty in order to bring us home. He was willing to play the part of the shepherd, an unclean social outcast in order to rescue one sheep who'd gone astray. He stooped down to pick him up and carry him home on his shoulders. Amen? 
We serve a king who will never get tired of bringing us home, who in the greatest act of humility stepped off of his throne and into our story. He got his hands dirty. And this fact comforts sinners, challenges Pharisees, and confronts us all with the relentless love of God. Amen? Number five, the parable of the Good Samaritan, found in Luke chapter 10. Are you still with me? All right, we went from five to six. Let's go. What if we're supposed to be uncomfortable? Our society values comfort, convenience, and speed. Instant gratification has become the norm. We don't want to wait for anything. Or is that just me? Okay for me? So be it. Have we missed the kingdom way, though? Jesus deploys this story to confront us with our misaligned priorities and introduce a different way of living. He invites us to a way of life that is marked by truly loving others. An expert in the law, a lawyer, asked Jesus about the greatest command. He knows the answer. Love God with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself. But he wants to trap Jesus. So he asks, okay, who's my neighbor? In response, Jesus tells a story about a Jewish man traveling from one region to another. Unfortunately, he gets mugged and left for dead on the side of the road. Along comes a priest, their equivalent of a pastor. What will he do? Walk right by. Can you guys imagine Pastor Chris doing something like that? Who said yeah? <laughs> I'm going to tell him you said that. Shortly after that, a Levite, someone who actually had medical knowledge, comes on the scene. Instead of stopping, this cat literally crosses to the other side of the street and leaves the man to die. A little later, a Samaritan Someone this Jewish man would have been taught to hate and bully every chance he got. Stops, gets off his donkey, cleans and bandages his wounds, hoists him onto the animal, and guides him the rest of the way to the city. Once there, he pays to have the Jewish man fed and taken care of. When he finally goes on his way, he offers to return and pay the difference of any additional expenses the injured man may have required during his recovery. Now Jesus asked, who is, the, who is the neighbor to the man who was injured? The lawyer states the obvious, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus challenges him and us to go and live like this, to be unafraid of getting our hands dirty, of crossing cultural lines and of being generous even when it doesn't make sense. All to love those who the world may teach us to overlook. So we read this story and think, okay, we're supposed to see ourselves as the good Samaritan. And yes, we are supposed to emulate his enemy-loving, extra-mile-walking kind of love. But let's also remember who Jesus was talking to. 
he was talking to a Jewish lawyer, a guy who, when he heard this story, would have naturally identified with the man on the ground, the victim, not the hero. Imagine how he felt thinking about his own people walking by him, the priest and the Levite, in this time of desperate need. But the crazy thing is, he would have understood why they just walked past him or ignored him because of his knowledge of the law. Remember, the man in the story was half dead. In fact, anyone walking by would have probably thought he was dead. So these temple officials were strictly forbidden from coming in contact with the dead body. As it would make them ceremonially unclean. Yet the lawyer would have felt the extreme tension of the situation as the silliness of their priestly requirements was called into question by the opportunity to save a life. You could literally hear him sort of thinking, forget your rules, come and help me, I'm dying over here. Amen? So what's the point? Jesus is once again inviting us into the tension of wrestling with the hard truth, the truth that God prioritizes things differently than we do. He would rather us take the risk of really loving someone than to show up to the temple, to the church, looking pristine. Jesus is intentionally stepping on toes here. He prioritizes mercy, humility, and service, not comfort, convenience, and efficiency. He is guiding us and this lawyer on a journey to discover what the law was always meant to accomplish, forming us into the kind of people who love God with all that we are and love others the same way that Jesus loved us. Amen? Okay, last parable, number six. You guys still with me? All right, we went from seven to eight. The parable of the hidden treasure found in Matthew chapter 13. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus introduces this idea of treasure. He challenges his listeners to resist giving themselves, giving their lives to things that won't last. Instead, he invites us to acquire stock in the kingdom of heaven, which is eternal. He reveals that the heart of our often insatiable desire to accumulate stuff, experiences, and relationships is actually worry. But the relationship that we get to have with God because of Jesus is one marked by trust not worry. A trust built on knowing God as our heavenly Father who delights in taking care of us. Matthew chapter 13 verse 44, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. A man found it and hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that land, and bought that field, excuse me. A couple of interesting things to note. 
Number one, to find something hidden, you have to be looking. Imagine trying to play a game of hide and seek without the seek part. Not so fun. This guy was looking for something. He was out in the field seeking, not sitting in his house waiting for something awesome to magically fall on his lap. God reminded his people through the prophets of old that when we seek him, we will find him. When we seek him with all of our hearts. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to seek him and his righteousness and his kingdom above all else. So in both the Old and New Testament, we're invited to an undistracted endeavor. We're invited to actually search, dig deeper. And the beautiful thing is that this kind of search always pays off. Number two, to gain something valuable, you have to give something up. This applies not just to monetary situations. Think about it. In order to have a close relationship with someone, you have to invest time getting to know them, having conversations with them, and sharing life with them. You are giving of yourself to gain the relationship. The same is true with the kingdom of God, but our culture tends to make decisions based solely on what we get out of something. What are the personal benefits for me? But that's not the life Jesus has called us to. Christianity is not about you. It's about following Jesus. And the Jesus we follow is a person who literally gave his life for the sake of others. The point of our faith is to become the kind of people who can love God with all that we are and love others the same way that Jesus has loved us. If that's not the goal, we're missing the point. The code of the kingdom is so much less about what we get and so much more about what we give. And in this story, the man who found the treasure gave everything. Amen? A couple of weeks ago, Brother Brian had sent me a text. He was telling me during his prayer time, he felt the Holy Spirit come to him to warn me that I was going to be under attack that week. But to take heart because my faith in Jesus was going to get me through it. So I received the blessing of the warning from the Holy Spirit, him being obedient and telling me about it as well as the blessing of his prayers. So I'm like, okay, I'm on high alert, got my head on a swivel, I'm trying to stay ready. He didn't know this though, but about a week leading into his warning, I had been struggling with heightened levels of frustration. And for those of you who know me know that it takes a lot just to get me frustrated, except my rush students. So that being said, it were small things that I found annoying and would get under my skin and things that normally would not. And this was happening over the course of a month. 
and it was getting a bit more intense as time was progressing. So a couple of days after I received this warning from the Holy Spirit, I decide to change cell phone carriers. I got a few, mm. those who are saying that know that doing that is not a simple task. You would think it would be, but it's not. Family, I was on the phone for three hours. And in that three hours, we were simply trying to change the PIN number to gain access to my account. I was going back and forth from their automated system to customer service. I was livid. Oh my gosh. I was beyond the red. And on top of that, I hadn't eaten. Man, so I'd gone from 10 to 15. I was angry. Arthur, man, I was, somebody's going to feel my wrath. I ain't got no wrath, y'all. <laughs> so I was even yelling <laughs> at their automated system. You know how to ask you to choose uh, say three or type in three? I was yelling, three! <laughs> Come on! And so at the end of that three hours, I get a customer service agent who actually got an attitude with me. So I've gone from 15 to 20. I was like, no, he did not. And so I'm praying. I'm like, Lord, I know what your word says. It says, be slow, <sighs> slow to speak, fast to listen, slow to anger. So I'm trying to focus, but it's not working. It's not working. I want So he tells me, this is three hours into this conversation, and multiple customer service agents that they can't help me, and that I, if I live close to an AT&T store just to go there. I'm like, you could have told me that three hours ago. So in my rage, I get in my car, AT&T is less than five minutes from my house, so I was like, okay, I'll go. I walk in. There's no kiosk to sign in. So I'm like, who's going to help me? And I'm telling you guys, I have the anger look on my face. I'm probably sweating because I was so angry. So I just sit down on the bench next to the entrance. No one comes to help me within about five minutes. So I stand up again, and then finally someone who is a few feet away says, sir, have you been signed in? Family, I yelled at him too. <laughs> no! And it's Jamie! So he signs me in, I sit back down. And I'm thinking I have this look of fire that's just coming from my bald head. <laughs> There's an older gentleman sitting in the back of the store, way in the back. He gets up, he walks with the cane, moves slowly toward, towards me. I see him, and I'm like, man, I am not in the mood to talk to anybody. So, and I'm, I'm hoping that I'm wearing this on my face. But apparently, I'm not as intimidating looking <laughs> as I thought I was. So he approaches me, and I'm wearing a t-shirt that says, pray. <laughs> and he gets to me and he says, I saw your t-shirt. You're my brother. I need to talk to you. So I'm like, come sit next, 
Come sit down and talk to me. He sits down. We proceed to have a really pleasant conversation. His name was Joseph. And he tells me about his church, that he had just left Bible study at Chick-fil-A, and that he even knew some folk here at our church. It was a wonderful conversation. Tremendous blessing. It literally took my mind off of all of my frustration and placed it on where it should have been in the first place, which is Jesus. And in just like that, it was a, a healing, if you will. Because again, all of that anger that I've been feeling for weeks past was lifted. So they called his name, and, they, and he went to, go be, to be attended to. And he walked about a good 20 feet away towards the back. He moved really slow because he was on the cane. I look at my phone for about 10 seconds, and I think to myself, I need to thank this brother for this conversation. It was a tremendous blessing. I look up, and he's gone. Gone. Mind you, I was sitting right next to the entrance. There is no way he could have moved from the back to the front and left without me seeing him. It was an angel. I strongly feel in my heart that was an angel because he was gone. Why am I telling you this? Because there's so many layers involved with that story. Dig deeper. Remember the two responses that these stories can bring about. Arrogant dismissal. I could have easily told Brother Brian, I'm good, man. Attacks, whatever. I got this. I could have refused to pray and thought I can handle it in my own strength. I could have, when I arrived at the AT&T store, told Joseph, do not talk to me. And I could have totally missed out on that blessing, that healing that took place from that encounter. Dig deeper. As the music begins to play and we prepare our hearts for communion. One of the things about that encounter was the fact that God didn't show up. He had always been there in the first place. And the fact that he chose to come and aid me in my time of, time of need for something as trivial as changing cell phone carriers. But it's so much bigger than that. He healed me from my anger issues and helped me to take my focus off of myself and place it on him. So in saying that, we've come full circle because the point of Jesus' parables was not just so we have these cute, morally informative stories. His parables are invitations to seek his kingdom, his values, and do something with what we discover. They aren't just stories we listen to. They are truths we live out. So take inventory. What confronted your heart today? Have you had ears to hear? Are you willing to get your hands dirty? Will you take the risk of really loving others? Will you commit to seeking 
the treasure of the kingdom and doing something with what you discover. Dig deeper. Allow these truths to remind you just how good God is, what it means to be his people, and what his kingdom is really like. Then join Jesus in bringing these pictures of heaven to life on earth. Amen? Amen. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Until our glorious King returns. God bless you, third service. We love you. Have a great week.